bit. If you haven't done so and you have a father in the house, please make sure you tell them Happy Father's Day. And let me add my Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers out there today, not only in our sanctuary but uh, listening by live stream. Uh, We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's hard to believe we began our study in Ephesians back in March. And uh, here we are in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I invite you to turn there. It's page 1,136 in your pew Bible. And since it's Father's Day, it reminds me of the story of the three expectant fathers waiting in the waiting room for their wives to deliver their firstborn children. And so these three men, this is prior to the days when fathers get to go into the delivery room. They would have to wait outside. And so these three fathers are anxiously waiting for the news from the nurse uh, as they are waiting for their wives to give birth. And so without uh, too much time, uh, a nurse comes through the door and she looks at the first father and she says, congratulations, you're going to be the father of twins. And he said, oh, that is wonderful. What a blessing. He said, this is a coincidence because I play second base for the Minnesota Twins. And everybody was like, yeah, that's awesome. And so they were celebrating with that one father. And no sooner that they were finished celebrating than another nurse comes in and she looks at that second father and she says, guess what? You're the father of triplets. And he said, this is amazing. He goes, I worked the third shift for 3M Company. And they were celebrating with him. And all of a sudden, the third father falls down on the ground. And he's like beating his fist against the floor and crying. And they said, what is wrong? What's wrong? He said, I'm a delivery guy for 7-Up. <laughs> so we don't know if he was a father of septuplets, but if you are the father of septuplets today, you win the prize. So today's message is life in Christ, life in Christ. Um, And in Ephesians chapter 5, we learn that Paul now is turning his attentions, not not from, he's he's talking about those who are in the church in chapter 4, that they are one in Christ. That because we are all one in Christ, we are part of the body of Christ. And God has gifted us to serve within the body, to edify and build up the body. And then in the latter part of that uh, that chapter, we, we looked at it last week, is that we are to be transformed. We are to be transformed. We transform our identity. We transform our minds. And we transform our relationships. And so Paul then launches into chapter 5 here, and he wants the Ephesian believers to turn their attentions not to the relationships inside the church, but now how are we to relate to the world around us? And so in Ephesians 5, he lets us know how to do that. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must be 
not, not a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Father, this is your word. It is Paul encouraging and exhorting those believers in Ephesus to live a life of love and a life of holiness before you. Oh, Father, on this Father's Day, we pray that we will imitate you, our Heavenly Father, in everything we do, everything we say, and everything we think as we, as we look to serve you and to be a light to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, as I think about this particular passage, the very first words there are kind of striking. Paul says, be imitators of God. Now, what does it mean to imitate God? If we think about God the Father, we think of him as this, you know, it says in the Bible that he is spirit. He is spirit, that he is transcendent, that he is other, he is beyond our understanding. There are non-communicable attributes of God that we don't possess. God is omniscient. God, God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. God is eternal, past to future. These are things that we can't truly relate to. So how do we imitate God? Well, it's very easy. All we have to do is look at the Son of God, which the Bible says is the exact representation of his being, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. In John chapter 1, it says, and the word that is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And because of that, we see God in bodily form. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that the fullness of the deity exists in bodily form in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So all we have to do is look to Jesus. And when we do that, we see in this passage two keys to living a life in Christ. The first is to live a life of love, verses 1 and 2. Now, it's interesting because it's, it's all, all, all the matter is, is to be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, to imitate. That, that word imitate is mimetai in Greek, mimetai. We get the, the English word mimic from that word. It's to mimic, to follow, to emulate. So anything that the Father does, we want to do what the Father does. And it's kind of amazing, but I don't know if you know this date in history, but in September 14th, 1990, something amazing happened in the Major League Baseball world. You know, Ken Griffey Sr., who was a Hall of Famer, he had spent most of his career uh, with the Cincinnati Reds, but he had been traded recently to the Seattle Mariners. And Ken Griffey Sr., was now joining a team that his son played for. 
Ken Griffey Jr. And so they're both in the lineup, one after the other. Ken Griffey Sr., on this day in 1990, September 14th, Ken Griffey Sr. gets up to the plate and he jacks a home run to left center field. And the crowd goes crazy. Well, up next is his son, Ken Griffey Jr. And wouldn't you know it, but on his at-bat, he jacks a home run to exactly the same spot in left center field. Like father, like son. You see, that is a way in which we can relate to how God wants us to imitate him. What he does and what he says. It's interesting because the Bible calls God love. It says God is love many times. The word love there, the word love in this chapter is agape. Agape love. And it means unconditional love. We read in John 3.16, one of the most popular verses in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We hang on to that love of God. In Psalm 103, which Hollis beautifully read this morning, it says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. In John 1.12, we learn how we can become children of God. It says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 21, we learn this, that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so therefore, we cry out, Abba, Father. We're all children of our heavenly father. In 1 John 3, 1, it says this, how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. The love of God is something that is the source for which we can then share love. You see, because God loved us, we can love others. We love because he first loved us. Do you feel the love of the heavenly father this morning. The source of love is God himself, most beautifully demonstrated in the second aspect of God's love, and that is love's sacrifice. Love's sacrifice. It says there, look at it in verse 2, that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Uh, in Romans 5, 8, it says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hebrews 9, 12 says this, that he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So Jesus Christ not only uh, went to the cross himself, but he paid it once and for all. For those of us who are believers today, your sin, past, present, and yes, future, has already been paid for by the blood of Christ at Calvary. Hallelujah, what a Savior. His sacrifice was three things. First of all, it was voluntary. Now, on this solemn day, 16 years ago, we lost five, uh, nine 
firefighters. The Charleston Nine, just down the road at Sofa Superstore, 16 years ago today, we lost nine firefighters. The ultimate sacrifice that they paid trying to save people. They lost their lives way too soon. And so we remember them for their sacrifice of love. Their lives were taken from them. There's another nine in Charleston, the Emmanuel Nine, that yesterday was the eighth anniversary of their brutal murders. But I love the response of that beautiful congregation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. They demonstrated true forgiveness, true love, even though their lives were taken from them. You see, they had their lives taken from them. The Charleston Nine, they they lost their lives. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up his life for you and for me. He gave it up. It says there in John chapter 10, these words, the good shepherd. He's referring to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Praise God and hallelujah that Jesus chose to lay down his life for the sheep because he wanted to be obedient to his heavenly Father. So it was voluntary. Jesus' sacrifice of love was voluntary. But then secondly, his sacrifice of love was propitiatory. Now, that's a big word, propitiatory. You know, I went to seminary, spent a lot of tuition dollars just to learn a word like that. But we're going to learn it this morning. Propitiation literally means the satisfaction of God's justice. Sin is an affront to God. Sin is an abomination to God. And so God has to be just in dealing with it. And what propitiation is, is it's ultimately Jesus Christ taking on the penalty of our sin and therefore satisfying the wrath of God, as it says later in this same passage. The wrath of God is against the sin of humanity. But therefore, through Christ, that wrath is satisfied. That wrath is set aside for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's propitiation. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse, verses 1 and 2, it says this. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for all. The only ones who are able to access this grace gift called salvation is by trusting Jesus Christ. But he died for all. And then thirdly, not only was it voluntary and propitiatory, it was also substitutionary. That is, he died in our place. In Isaiah 53, it says this, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Jesus carried our iniquities and our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's from Isaiah, writing 700 years before Calvary. 
And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That Jesus was substitutionary. He took our place. That is why we sang the song this morning. When he hung on the cross, he thought of us. He thought of all of those. You know, those guys who were telling him, oh, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. Had I been Jesus on the cross and I had the power of God with me, I would have come down off that cross. But what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't come down off that cross. He wasn't there to settle a score. He wasn't there to deal with uh, the sinfulness of mankind in their flesh in, uh, in front of the cross. He was there to pay for the penalty of the sin of mankind. He was there to shed his own blood for our soul. And therefore, he is a one, one who has a loving sacrifice for us. So this love, we have to live it out ourselves. If we are to imitate the Father, we have to love like the Father loves. We have to love like the Son loves. Agape love is not passive. Agape love is active. Agape love is proactive. Agape love is unconditional. Agape love says, I love you in spite of who you are or your sin or how you treat me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. You're going to come to a time here in America where people will persecute you for trusting Jesus. And our response must be, biblically, love them as Christ loved them. He hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So that's number one. We are to love live a life of love. But then secondly, we are to live a life of holiness. And Paul gives uh, some stern warnings here to the church of Jesus Christ and how we are to live holy lives. Look at what it says there in in verse uh, three. He says, these are improper for God's holy people. Now, what it means to be holy is this, that you are set apart, that you are sanctified, that you are, in fact, different. Uh, The Bible will call us peculiar people because we don't live as the world lives. We don't place priority on what the world places priority on. We are holy within the gospel of Jesus Christ in our living. And so we are to live holy lives. Well, first, the holiness source is God himself. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on his in his, on his throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. And it says this, that the seraphim who were around the throne sang this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4.8 says this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see, God is Holy. That is why he tells us in Leviticus as well as in 1 Peter that we are to be holy because he is holy. Well, how can you and I be holy like God? God is so pure. He is so perfect. How can we be that way? The good news is the Holy Spirit himself lives, takes up residence within us and gives us the ability to surrender to him so that we can emulate the holiness of God. 
we then are to be holy. We are to live holy lives. And Paul then says, but among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. And then he talks about how we are to speak. There's no obscenity. There's no foolish talk. There should be no coarse joking coming out of our mouths. Why? Because that doesn't emulate God. That emulates the world. And the question we always have to ask ourselves at the beginning of each day is, when are we going to live like God and stop living like the world? You see? Because at the end of the day, we have to be separate. We have to be an example. We have to emulate the one we serve. And he is holy. How do you live a holy life? You know, Paul is talking, let's get real here. Paul is talking to the Ephesian church. That church is nestled right in the midst of one of the most pagan societies of the day. In fact, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, is in Ephesus. And people would go and worship Artemis, who is the mother goddess of fertility, the mother goddess of fertility. And so the perversion, the sexual perversion in that world time at that and during Paul's day was rampant. People were expressing themselves sexually in every single way. And so it is in this culture that Paul is addressing the sexual immorality of the day. The word sexual immorality in the Bible is pornonia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And pornonia literally means it's every form of perversion of God's ordained purpose for sex. Sex is between a man and a woman who are married. That's what sex is designed for by God. Sex outside of that is, in fact, sexual immorality. And it includes prostitution, it includes fornication, it includes adultery, it includes homosexuality, lesbianism, incest, even bestiality. And there are lists, these are called vice lists in the Bible. They're over and over and over in the New Testament. There's one in Matthew 15, there's one in Mark 7, there's one in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's one in Galatians 5, there's one in Colossians 3, and there's one in Timothy as well. These are vice lists. And every one of them highlights the point that we who live like that, those who live like that are of the world and not of the church of Jesus Christ. So we are to watch our actions because sexual immorality can become a real barrier between you and God and certainly not reflect on the holiness of God. In Jude 1.7, it says this, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know Sodom and Gomorrah. It said that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. This is the Bible speaking. This isn't Randy. This is the Bible speaking. Jude makes a declaration of judgment upon those who continually practice this. Now, does this mean that those who fall into a trap or get stuck in this sin and then find their way back to God are going to suffer the punishment of hell? No, no. It just means that those who live like this on a continuous basis and reject Jesus, you realize your sin, a person's sin 
is not what keeps them out of the kingdom of heaven. It's their rejection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. Even after you are saved, you still sin. And if anybody in this room wants to come up to me and say, no, I don't sin anymore, I'm going to point you to John, 1 John, okay? And I'm going to say, then you just lied, okay? And therefore, that's a sin. Does it make sense? So we are all in this together, but we have to watch our actions and be holy. But then secondly, we have to watch our thoughts. Look at what it says there, in, in impurity or of greed. The word greed there in, incorporates envy and covetousness. How many of you have ever wanted more money from your company that you work for? You ever wanted to have a, a bigger salary? Do you want to have more money? Do you want to have more things? Why? Because that's part of the deal. How many of you ever said, boy, if I get to this level in my salary, then I'll be set? And how many of you have gotten there and then you said, well, maybe I need a little bit more? You see, we live because we're worldly. We constantly want what we don't have. We want more. We want more and more and more and more. And what do we find? We find that at the end of the, the rope, we always want more. We're never satisfied. And Jesus says, you know, offerings and, and uh, uh, sacrifice you bring to me, but that doesn't satisfy me. What I want is you. I want your heart. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. He said, I've got them all covered. He goes, good, sell all of your wealth and then come follow me. You see, this rich young ruler had great wealth. And what did he do? He went away sad. He went away sad because he didn't want to give up that which he could not keep in order to gain that which he could not lose. You see, that's where we are in the world today. We all want more and more and more. I will tell you that, you know... (laughs) comparison. Social media kind of drives this, doesn't it? You ever been on social media and you look at your friends and they're on a trip to Hawaii and you just don't have enough money to go to Hawaii, but your friends are out there snapping pictures and posting them and you go, boy, I'm kind of envious of this person who's in Hawaii. I can't even, I can't even make my bill payments, you know? Comparison, get this, comparison is the thief of contentment. Don't compare yourself to one another. It is a robber of your contentment. Be content with what you have because that is where God wants us to be. You know, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. (laughs) That's true. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, when I talked about the riches of Christ, you can't take it with you, folks. You can't take it with you. Your purpose in this life is not to accumulate the most toys. Your purpose in this life is to glorify God. Your purpose in life is to be a light to the world around us. And that light must shine out. We got to watch our thoughts. So we watch our actions, we watch our thoughts, and then thirdly, we must watch our words. Look at what it says there. There should be no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. You know, a lot of us 
Uh, sometimes we'll listen to people tell an off-color joke or something and we'll laugh at it or whatever. You know, this is where Paul's getting at. He's saying you shouldn't even laugh at those kinds of things. You have to be separate from that. You've got to disengage. The, uh, the antidote to any of this coarse language or obscenity or foolish talk, the word foolish here literally is moronus, which is where we get the word moron from. It's moronic to talk like a foolish person. Okay, And so Paul is telling us to watch our lips. Do you know who really addresses this? James. You want to be really challenged with how you talk, how you speak? Go read James chapter 3 and it will convict you. You see, James, James says you curse out of one, uh, one sentence and then you bless with the next sentence. Your tongue is a fire. It's a flaming fire. It's out of control. You've got to rein it in. You've got to pull it in. How many of us struggle with this particular aspect of the Christian holiness and walk? You see, and and this is where God says the antidote comes. Be thanksgiving. Bless. Be thankful in all circumstances. When is the last time you have built someone up, encouraged them, strengthened them, complimented them? given them praise for something that they have done or something that they are doing. It's a wonderful way to make people feel good about who they are in Christ. So let's encourage one another with our words. Well, as we think about this holiness, living a life of holiness, you realize what all of these vices really add up to? He says it there. He says, such a man is an idolater. In verse 5, an idolater. What is an idolater? It's basically a person who is placing their emphasis in their eyes on something other than God. You know, we live in a culture right now where self-idolatry is rampant. People all want to become self-centered. They're egotistical. And basically what happens is, is that everything revolves around them. Okay, on the social media, do you know people want, they they strive. I asked my kids last night, they strive to become influencers. Okay, do you know what an influencer is on social media? It's a person who has lots of followers. People who come and want to hear what they have to say. It's self-centered. It's idolatry. It is like, look at me, look at me, look at me. I am the God of my universe. Well, the problem with that is, is that that person is, is finite. That person has limited knowledge of everything. This is why the Bible is so countercultural. The Bible tells us to submit and to sacrifice and to not become the center, but to point people to Jesus Christ, who should be the true center of our universe. You see, that's where Paul is driving these people in Ephesus to be. He says to flee idolatry in 1 Peter chapter 4, we read these words, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Notice they choose to do it. They choose to be idolatrous, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
These are strong words from Peter. In other words, how many of you have ever felt the peer pressure? Young people, peer pressure is one of the greatest struggles that young people have in high school and college, even in middle school. Because if they don't join in the crowd, they become an outcast. Can I just give you permission today to be a total outcast in the world? Because that means you are an incast in the body of Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of God. Follow Jesus and be that outcast. Be that person who's different. It's okay to be different. It's really okay. Know whom you have believed and you are persuaded that he is able to keep you till that day. Does that make sense? So idolatry, idolatry, it flails against it. And then finally, I have to tell you that I have personally failed in life. I have failed over and over and over again. I'm not unlike any of you. I have messed up. I have fallen. I have committed sins that are an abomination to my Savior and Lord. And yet, my Savior took up my case. My Savior stood there before the great God, our judge. My advocate, Jesus, stood in front of me. And he said, I've paid it all. I've paid it all. This morning, Christian, rest in the fact that Jesus paid it all for you. When you come to that place of sweet redemption, then you will want to live the rest of your life pointing people to that wonderful, glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. For he is our Redeemer. Our Redeemer lives. Finally, it says there, talks about the inheritance of the kingdom of God. You see, who inherits the kingdom of God? The poor in spirit do. To be poor in spirit literally means to be spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. To recognize that you can't bring anything to God that it might be acceptable to him. That you come empty to be filled. You come full of holes. You're, you're a cracked pot. And what does he do? Cracked pots show more light, more of my light to the world. Come as you are. We sing the hymn, Just As I Am. He says, the poor in spirit come. Those who are persecuted will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in the eyes of the world will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said this, those who do the will of my Father will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God but only those who have the spirit of, the, of God living in us, giving us new life, will we see the kingdom 
And so therefore, this morning, our challenge is to imitate God by living a life of love and by living a life of holiness. Now at this time, we're going to go into a time of observing the Lord's Supper. And it's a sweet time of reflection and remembrance of what Jesus did for you. If you are a born-again believer here this morning, we invite you to the table of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. So this, this morning, what I want to do in the next minute here is allow each one of us to come to the Lord, confess our sin, come to the table, cleared of that sin, so that we may partake of the Lord's Supper. Let us pray.